this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we conclude with the final chapter of Mura, her autobiography, written by Mora Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 10 Seven Chapels and a Garden While I was at 44 Bruton Place, a very sweet girl with long blonde hair, Esme Bird, who had trained as a pianist but was doing secretarial work, came to help me with my correspondence. One day, on my return from the country, I climbed up my rickety old pair of steps to switch on the electricity again after my absence. The electric meters in the house were awkwardly located above a sink in a corner of the garage. I climbed the steps, reached up to the switches, but since I had not placed my feet centrally on the tread, the ladder swayed and I fell over, hitting my right breast on the edge of the sink below as I fell. I said afterwards to Esme, as I nursed my badly bruised breast, I hope this doesn't give me another cancer. A year later, in September 1983, Esme reminded me of what I had said, for the same symptoms I had had in 1970 recurred, and back I went into the King Edward VII Hospital for a second operation. Richard Handley had retired. His successor, Mr. now Sir William Slack, looked after me. There was a repeat performance, three months' convalescence, during which I endured the painful process of reusing my right hand and arm to practice the piano. And similarly, there was a drastic drop in my income. In 1983, I sold the lease of my house in Bruton Place to Maurice and Josephine Sachi and moved to a flat on two floors with windows at the back opening onto a beautiful patio garden in Lowndes Square. To celebrate the 10th anniversary of my arrival in Razaguer and wishing to repay the villagers for all their kindness to me and the happiness they had brought me, I invited 40 of them to come to London at my expense. Two coaches were hired. They brought with them hundreds of snails, piles of salmon, huge braziers, aioli sauce, and, of course, Razaguer wine. I quartered as many as I could on my sofas in my flat, and we celebrated with a great cargolade in the garden. Elizabeth Harwood sang, and Peter Shaba played the violin. A lot of them had never been out of France in their lives, and it was an amazing experience for them they have never forgotten. The morning following the cargolade, the porter at the neighboring block of flats asked me, what was all that lovely music next door last night? After a year in Lowndes Square, my bank manager was brutally frank. You are spending more than you are earning, he told me. That's madness, I exclaimed. It's going to stop from now. I am a very determined woman when I make up my mind about something. I telephoned a man friend. 
Will you buy the rest of my lease? I asked baldly. Yes, he said immediately. I went searching round the agencies for a big studio. However, now I found the estate agents did not want me on their books because I was a pianist. John Lill, for example, lives in an isolated cottage in Essex, where only the birds and grazing cows may be disturbed by his practicing. But isolation in the country would not be good for me. The other problem was space. A grand piano takes up a lot of room. Eventually I found a suitable duplex apartment in Thurlow Square, jubilantly signed the lease and prepared to move in. On the next Sunday morning, I telephoned my new landlord. I'm going to be your new tenant, I announced gaily. I just wanted to say hello. He could hardly have been more crushing. I don't know you, he began. I don't know anything about your morals or your finances. I only know you are a piano player. I was somewhat taken aback. You could look me up in who's who, I suggested mildly. One thing is I don't want any piano playing, he stated. I'll put the piano in the basement, I offered. That won't help, he objected. You'll have to soundproof the whole place. Sound rises and will come through the window. I realized it was hopeless. I telephoned my lawyer and canceled the whole thing. Early in October 1983, I went to Paris to give a concert and the following day I had lunch with a woman friend. We told each other our troubles. Her husband had recently died and left her the responsibility of managing his properties. Why don't you let them? I suggested. Would you like to rent a flat in Monte Carlo for a year? She asked. The rent was only a few pounds more than the rates I was paying in Lowndes Square. I'll take it, I said at once. Don't you want to see it? she asked. No. It was a beautiful apartment on the Avenue Princesse Grace at the eastern end of Monte Carlo. The night I arrived, I stood on the terrace and looked out over the Mediterranean. It was magical. Sea all around me, and I resolved then and there to stay. A century ago, travelers could reach Monaco only by mule on a dusty road or by sea. Beneath the beautiful palace, built on a rock overlooking the sea, runs a tunnel which was used as a shelter during the war years. The lower, middle, and upper Cornish wind, round in hair-raising hairpin bends through the loveliest country, linking the towns with the Riviera below. Italy shimmered in the distant sunlight. Leos love the sun. It brings out the best in them. Prince Regnier's cousin, Prince Louis de Polignac, had been the president of the Société des Bains de Mer for over twenty years. I had known and loved his great-aunt, Princess Edmond de Polignac, who had been Venaretta singer when I attended her salon in Paris the year I won the second prize in the Issei competition. She had founded the Singer Polignac Foundation for the promotion of classical music in the arts, but it was Princess Grace's predecessor, the blonde American Alice Hein, Duchess de Richelieu, who married Prince Albert I of Monaco, who made Monte Carlo a great center of culture. Monte Carlo brought me luck. 
It is like a village, and I am never lonely here. Several friends of mine have settled here, and I have met most interesting people, including the novelist and composer Anthony Burgess and Shirley Conran. But music is what matters most to me. It is work. Then I rest. I refuse most invitations. One day at one of the public functions, Prince Louis de Polignac approached me. Vora, I have a propriété in France. There are several little chapels around there, and they are going to sell them off as discos or galleries. They should be restored. Could we run a festival there and save them? Of course, I replied. I give concerts in churches in England. When I arrived to stay at Kerbastic, impeccably run to the tiniest detail, I exclaimed to Prince Louis, I do love luxury. Prince Louis regarded me indulgently. No, Moura, he rebuked me gently. Pas de luxe, le raffinement. He was right, of course. I was quartered in the beautiful bishop's room and slept in a four-poster bed furnished with the finest hand-embroidered linen. The adjoining room was an opulently furnished salon for my use, with a grand piano for me to practice on whenever I liked. There were three grand pianos in the chateau, built by Prince Louis' aunt, Comtesse Marie Blanche de Polignac, who had filled the chateau with music. The library possessed a priceless collection of music manuscripts, and Prince Louis showed me the manuscript of two piano concertos by Poulenc. The chapels were dotted about the village of Guidel on the Brittany coast, north of Quimper. Long, lovely beaches bordered the Atlantic, where bracing breezes ruffled the sand dunes. In the village, women still wore the traditional Breton white lace bonnets. Inland it was farming country. Vast meadows of sunflowers grown for seed oil nodded gold heads in the sea-salted air. We toured the chapels. They were not completely in ruins, and when I went about them singing, the acoustics were fine. I was enthusiastic and said we must start straight away. Prince Louis, an absolute perfectionist, said, No, everything must be done properly. Arrangements must be made carefully. It would take two or three months. Nothing must be left to chance. I'm an artist, I pleaded. You're a fantasiste, Prince Louis told me, insisting that all concerts must be well organized. The first concerts of Le Festival des Sept Chapelles, as I suggested it should be called, were held in 1986, timed to take place in July following the Raziger Festival of Music and Wine. We began with five of the chapels. Prince Louis, his brothers Prince Edmund and Prince Guy, and their two sisters were the patrons of the festival. The performers, instead of staying in little stone houses in a Pyrenee mountain village, were royally entertained in Kerbastic on the outskirts of Guidel. The attention to the minutest detail, the perfectionism of Prince Louis, taught me so much. It was a revelation to me. At the festival in 1990, we used all seven chapels for the first time. 
Christopher Underwood, the tenor, sang in his recital some of the songs Foray, Poulenc, and Ravel had composed for Prince Louis' aunts, Princess Edmond de Polignac and Comtesse Marie Blanche de Polignac, who bequeathed Kerbastic to her favorite nephew, Prince Louis. Audiences flocked to the village of Guidel and the Seven Chapels, and Radio France usually broadcast excerpts from the festival. Now that my life seemed set on a steady course, I was terribly shocked to be telephoned one day with the shattering news that Martin Thomas was dead, killed in a car crash in Norfolk. He was not a good driver, and had sat for his driving test many times before at last passing it. He was driving alone in thick fog on the way to see his mother in Lincolnshire. Stuck behind a lorry, he grew impatient to overtake it and met a Mercedes in a head-on collision. Martin was killed outright, and I went at once to Norfolk. I had grown emotionally very dependent on Martin. Our collaboration, for such it had been, on the transformation and decoration of Bruton Place, La Bergerie, Lowndes Square, and Impasse Rue de la Place at Rasiguerre had been a momentous one. His artistic spirit seemed to be everywhere I looked around me. He had designed every single cushion I had worked in my favorite Florentine stitch in sherbet colors. For a long time I was inconsolable. Martin had understood me and my mood so well. I really had loved him. In the resulting mood of deep despondency, I threw myself with renewed vigor into my music. Just before I was due to go to Rasiguerre for the 1983 festival, the owner of the apartment on the Avenue Princesse Grace reminded me she would be needing it again herself. So after the festival, I persuaded a friend to drive me and my decorator, mate, who had succeeded Martin, Gordon Black, to Monte Carlo and helped me find a new apartment. It was a magnificent drive along the Côte d'Azur in the sunshine towards Nice, beside the glittering sea. I had heard of an apartment that was vacant and was intrigued to see it. It's up there, I told my friends gesturing up to the perpendicular townscape behind us. Are you too tired to go and see it? We don't mind in the slightest, they said. So we walked up hundreds of steps to reach the villa, which looked delightful. The next morning we obtained the key of the first floor and explored it. There was a spacious foyer, and beautiful views extended on all sides through large bay windows. By eleven o'clock I had signed the lease, I lived there happily for the next seven years. I was in Monaco, yet the other side of the road was France. The neighbors on the ground, second and third floors, whom I gradually came to know, told me they loved hearing me practice and play the piano. The one cloud, literally, was the plan to build two huge blocks of flats nearby. In 1990, alas, the new owner of my apartment wanted to occupy it himself, and I had to move again. Ironically, I found my next apartment on the 16th floor of the high-rise building next to the villa, Chateau Perigord. It is a beautifully designed block, spacious, with a marble-floored garden gallery decorated with trompe-l'oeil trellises, roses and irises, orchids, 
and honeysuckle. Behind me the stony landscape rises up and up, villas clinging like limpets to the rock, and in front lies the sea. The most important thing to play well is good health, Uncle Tobbs used to say. The night before a concert I am always in bed by eight o'clock, and then I read. Sometimes it is a biography, such as the one of Horowitz, or something frivolous like Vogue. It is a good thing for the brain to change completely from the work it does. Sometimes I listen to great performers playing the music I am going to play the next day. Courtauld said a good digestion was vital. Light reading, a good night's sleep, and nourishing food on the days before a concert is best for me, and where food is concerned, I let myself go. Mangoes, yogurt, fillet, steak, lots of butter and cream. When I eat better, I play better. Often I eat on the beautiful terrace facing the Mediterranean, basking in the sunshine, shaded from the glare by a blue-and-white striped awning. I eat very carefully on the day of the concert, just a grilled steak. In the last century, concert pianists traveled round the world in a caravan group. Their piano went with them, together with an entourage of tuners, secretaries, dressers, and family. But during the war I became so used to playing on whatever instrument was available, irrespective of its condition or age, that I have grown accustomed to traveling alone. Sometimes a strange piano can be very hard work to play. After playing one day in the recording studio, I was more than usually exhausted. The piano was too new, and the keys far from easy to depress, so that to put any expression into the music was virtually impossible. The same was true of a piano at the Covent of Our Lady at Southam, where I gave a charity recital. The dear nuns bought an expensive new piano especially for my recital, and the keys were unbearably stiff and underused. At times, concert societies are false in their economies. They will spend thousands of pounds on advertising, new seats, equipping the bar, installing a restaurant, car parks, foyer exhibitions, but rarely invest in a first-class piano. Recently, complaints from visiting artists to one concert hall reached a climax when two concert pianists withdrew recordings of their work on the resident inferior instrument, thus forcing the management to invest £27,000 in a new piano. I possess two pianos, the instrument in my music room at Raziger once belonged to the composer Gerald Finzi, so closely connected with the Three Choirs Festival at Gloucester, where my grandparents lived and are buried. The second, in my apartment in Monte Carlo, is a Steinway Grand Piano measuring 2 meters 20 centimeters long. It was indescribably difficult to maneuver it into the apartment on the 16th floor of a block of 34 floors. A crane had to be used to hoist it up at the back of the block and through the French windows of my music room facing the mountains. One of the most memorable pianos I have played was in Paris in a sumptuous apartment at the Avenue Foch owned by an American friend. It was an Erard piano 
and I felt I made the most gorgeous sounds ever on it, playing Debussy and Chopin. Touring remoter parts of the world, one risks having to use really dreadful instruments, but, happily for me, the pianos available on my recent tour of Australia and New Zealand were correctly tuned, concert-standard grand pianos, which were a pleasure to play. The modern cult of ancient instruments does not appeal to me at all. I am a woman of today, and only modern instruments interest me, although I do find the newer Steinways are not what they were. As I did in wartime England, I go to work on an egg. An hour and a half before a concert, I have two boiled eggs, three and a half minutes, bread and butter, and a pot of strong tea. Sometimes I have three eggs in a day. Pianists need plenty of protein. The steaks have to be almost blue, just on and off the grill, and occasionally I help myself to a few lumps of sugar. These give me instant energy. My aunt, Sister Mary John, was a great believer in sugar. I could not get through the day, she told me once, without eight teaspoonfuls of sugar. The best tonic for me is a glass of my own muscat wine. It is very sweet and potent, brims with vitamins and minerals, yet has nothing added to it. But I never drink alcohol before a concert. Later at night I usually drink a mug of Horlicks. That helps me to sleep. My life is completely secluded. I cannot go out and practice. I never accept luncheon invitations. There is nothing in my life except my work, and I have my reward in the wonderful notices. I am in excellent health because I look after myself. I have had to learn to cope, otherwise I should have gone under, and I have no intention of doing so. It is surprising what a good kick in the pants every so often can do. All my life I have been so full of energy. I feel so strong now. My throat still irritates me a little, a hangover from the whooping cough. I am far too busy to think about old age. There are not enough hours in the day for me to do all the things I want to do. In Monte Carlo there are ballets, operas, concerts, and there is a theater in French and English. French television is very good. French radio broadcasts beautiful music all day long. There is my practicing, my correspondence to attend to, my housekeeping to do. I am very happy here. Concert-goers write to me not only about music, but all sorts of things, and I try to answer every letter personally. After my Woman's Hour broadcast from the Beaumarie Festival on the Isle of Anglaise, the editor of that national institution wrote to me, Our listeners have remarked particularly on your optimism and strength of purpose in overcoming cancer. Thank you for talking to us about something so personal. I received many letters from similarly afflicted listeners. Then the Sunday Telegraph color supplement ran a feature called Formula for the Perfect Party, and I was included. To my surprise, I received a letter from a reader claiming he possessed pieces of the same Mason's Ironstone dinner service I had, and could we exchange missing pieces? Another correspondent wrote that he was interested in lady pianists with fascinating names. 
Monique de la Brucolerie, Denise Lassimon, Gina Bachauer, and me. An unusual name sometimes presents problems. I am often mistakenly called Moira, and when I travel abroad I am usually asked to send a phonetic pronunciation of my name for radio and television announcers. I am a morning person. I have always woken up early in the day, raring to go. Once at the hairdresser's at 9 a.m., I was chatting and laughing away to Christian, the stylist who has dressed my hair for over 30 years, when another client asked him, was I drunk? Oh, no, replied Christian. More limpany is always like that first thing in the morning. When people say I look younger every day and that my forehead is completely unlined, I reply, it is all the hard work. My music comes first. In 1989, I celebrated my 60th jubilee as a concert pianist with a recital at the Royal Festival Hall. I was overwhelmed by astonishing reviews. The headlines ran, Queen of the Ivories, The Barbara Cartland of the Piano, The Versatile Specialist, Poet of the Piano, Cornish at Heart, I believe I have acquired something of Clara Schumann's style, to play straight, nothing shishi, nor what I call powdered rubatos. Every day I practice, as I have done for over 60 years, in four one-hour sittings to keep my fingers supple. I do stretching exercises, studies in sixths and octaves, fast scales in every key, than any difficult passages in a forthcoming program. For the All Chopin recital at the Royal Festival Hall in the autumn of 1989, I played the 24 Preludes, Opus 28, and the B minor Sonata Number no. 3, Opus 58. Exercises do not tire the brain. What tires the brain is playing at white heat, at full strength, as at a concert. You cannot practice like that. There would be no reserves left for the performance. Some artists, such as the brilliant pianist Guillaume Novaes, do not practice on the day of a concert, nor the day before, in order to be absolutely fresh. Unusually for the child prodigy, there has been no hiatus in my career. Between the child and the fully-fledged pianist, as often happens, because from my debut I went on playing, and at seventeen I was a young woman. I have been playing non-stop for sixty-two years, and today I play far less wrong notes. Before each concert, when I am shattered with nerves, I say to myself, Mora, why are you doing this? This is the last time. And then I thank God for leaving me my hands. There is only one thing to do with nerves, and that is really to concentrate with your brain and your heart on what you are playing. You won't notice the nerves because you are busy. That is why it is so tiring, why one is so done in after a concert. Then, of course, the minute it is over, and I hear the applause and the waves of admiration, and yes, love of making marvelous music overwhelm me, Alone on the platform beside my piano, I feel exhilarated, rewarded. Sometimes when I have come off the platform 
After a performance, it takes a while for me to get my legs back. They tremble so much. I am high, intoxicated, and may say things I would not say normally. If the reviews are good, I am given courage to go forward to the next concert. If the reviews are bad, I make up my mind to play better the next time. Phenomenally clear articulation and power, one reviewer wrote of my performance of Prokofiev's first and second piano concertos and the three Rachmaninoff piano concerti, recorded in the early fifties under Walter Suskin's baton and reissued by Olympia on compact disc. In years after I turned aside Walter Legge's suggestion that I record the Debussy Preludes and the Chopin Fantasy, these are the two composers with whom I am now having such a success. Described as one of my most magical recordings was an unpretentious collection of the short pieces and encores so dear to me, and a French pianist praised my Debussy to the skies, so I could not help thinking that if a Frenchman admires the way I play Debussy, then I must be quite good, mustn't I? Another of my reviews read, Beyond the cavils of criticism and volatile fashions in interpretation, Limpany is a national institution. The French press headlined, Imperatrice, l'enfant, est devenu grande dame. Indeed, in the French newspapers, I am alluded as Dame Mora Limpany. In 1990, I played four times during the week-long Festival of Music and Wine at Raziguerre, the Saison Piano Concerto No. 2, Beethoven's Emperor Concerto, with Edward Heath conducting, a solo recital, and a sonata with the violinist Peter Shaba. Between these concerts, I flew to Worthing to play. The French composer Maurice Ohana wrote to me, I cannot tell you how impressive your performance is. There is superb maturity, a command of phrasing, tone far beyond the merely technical power. How heartening to find that age brings something more to admire, probably the result of a whole life of faith and meditation. The year 1989 was the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Second World War and the start of the National Gallery concerts. At a recital to commemorate this, the violinist Ida Hendel, who had also been a child prodigy, and I played in the gallery. I played Bach and Schumann, and together we played César Franck. At another commemorative concert, I played the Warsaw Concerto by Richard Adensel. To hear the wartime music was to bring back to us, the performers and the audience, those perilous and dramatic times. The following year, 1990, was the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, which I remember vividly, and Ted Heath asked me to play in Canterbury Cathedral. Rosalind Runcie, the wife of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, herself a pianist and an excellent teacher, was present. From the first-floor study of his serene old house, cushioned by gracious lawns in the cathedral close at Salisbury, where he has found repose, music, and spiritual strength, Ted wrote to me afterwards, I want to thank you again, with all my heart, 
for coming to play at the Gala concert in Canterbury Cathedral in aid of the Battle of Britain appeal. You played the Mozart concerto most beautifully, and I am sure you realized how strongly the audience expressed its appreciation. The famous guests were, of course, delighted that you were able to stay with them for dinner afterwards. Your career seems to be taking off like a meteor, wrote Lionel, another friend. An old acquaintance who was sent a video of me described me thus. You went up to the stage all dressed in yellow, looking simply lovely and not a day older than thirty-nine. You really are a fantastic person, and I hope and pray that you will have the health and strength to give another recital on your eightieth birthday. When I played Liszt's Les Jeux d'eau à la Villa d'Este at the John Ogden Memorial Concert, the Independent wrote, Gentle and reviving, with spraying arcs of notes, flawlessly captured and balanced even at their softest. People tell me today that I make pianistic technical problems look easy, and I feel I owe it all to dear Uncle Tobbs, for he made everything so simple. Often he had a way of reducing a very complicated problem to utter simplicity. His concept of piano sound was so varied and wonderful. We worked on the Debussy preludes and achieved ethereal textures with the fingers barely touching the keys. He had a way of blending interpretation and technique so perfectly that one was scarcely aware of the distinction. He used to say that one should play no faster than one can think. I am constantly reminded of the wisdom of his advice. Myra Hess, Nina Milkina, Eileen Joyce, Harriet Cohen, Irene Schauer, Clifford Curzon and I all studied with Uncle Tobbs, but we were very different from one another. To quote from the Matai Association Journal, Instead of imbibing or producing a predictable conformity, our Matai training has liberated the musical psyche of each to speak on its own terms. If I have a regret about the direction my career has taken, it would be that I have not played more chamber music. This was largely because I had such an early success in the solo repertoire that it took all my time. At Raziger I began to work with the marvelous violinist Peter Shaba, who now lives in Lyon. We played the César Franck sonata together, and I hope to do more in the future. In 1992 I am going to the Gestadt Festival and shall be playing with my colleague and contemporary Yehudi Menuhin. We are exactly the same age. And at the 1991 Promenade Concerts I shall be playing again the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto in G minor. In addition to performing, I have begun to think in terms of doing some more extensive teaching in the future. People say to me that it is extraordinary that I should be one of the last prominent Matai pupils who uses the Matai principles so extensively in my work, and yet I have done so little about trying to propagate these ideas to others. I have made a start. In August 1990, a charming 28-year-old Danish-American, Ken Johansson, was sent to me as a pupil by my old friend, J.G. Lynx. Ken flew to Perpignan from Dallas. 
Dallas is one of my favorite television programs, and I try never to miss an episode. But Ken represents a different aspect of that famous city, which has a very strong classical music tradition. His piano tutor in Texas was Alain Naudet, who had been a pupil of Dino Lepati and Nadia Boulanger, and a professor of music at Cape Town University. When I was sent a tape of Ken Johansson's playing, I felt that here was a young man I could help, and I rarely, if ever, give lessons, feeling that the vocation for teaching was never part of my nature. Every day for fourteen days, Ken came to me for one to two hours, and together we worked on the Schumann Fantaisie and the first piano concerto by Chopin. When I told my friend in Raziger, Marie-Rose Foussat, that I was giving lessons to a young man aged twenty-eight, she gave me an old-fashioned look. "'Lessons in what?' she demanded skeptically. "'He's learned more in fourteen days than in five years,' observed Ken's tutor, Alain Naudet, who assured me a new career as a teacher could be mine for the asking. But a friend for whom I have great respect countered, "'You are a performer. Why should you teach?' Every time you play, it is a lesson. But now a new idea is taking shape in my mind, the Moore Limpany School of Piano Playing. The problem is, should it be in Brittany or Roussillon or even Monte Carlo? For the 1990 festival at Raziger, the village revived an ancient ceremony initiated in the year 900 by Wilfred Le Velu, Count de Catalonia, the remains of whose chateau, Tremoin, is the tower atop a mountain and the landmark whose image dominates the village, valley, and surrounding country and adorns all the wine labels. Ted Heath, myself, the secretary general of the prefecture, Monsieur Henri Ferral, the president of the bank, Credit Agricole, Monsieur Camot, and the deputy of circumscription, Monsieur Pierre Esteve, were all enthroned as companions of Tremoin. We were decorated with specially struck silver medals hung on red ribbons by the officers of the cave cooperative in their traditional costume of red berets and black aprons, and presented with ceremonial gifts. Ted Heath with a pair of secateurs, Monsieur Camot with a rake, and I with a pair of souffleurs, very useful for the open fire in the kitchen of my house at Raziger. Present at the ceremony was Émile Gazou, recently retired director of La Cave Cooperative, a post he held for forty years. The presentations were made by dear Paul Chiffre, the oldest companion of wine in the village, a grand maître aged eighty-three, an old soldier who spent four long years as a prisoner of war of the Nazis in one of the Stalags. My nephew Christopher Johnston flew from New Zealand, where he is now the director of the National Gallery at Auckland, so we had a happy reunion together with his lovely girlfriend Louise, now his wife. I was so proud that the grand maître of French music came and played at Raziger, Jean Francais, whose first compositions were published when he was twelve years old, whose music is elegant and gloriously witty. 
He had been a protégé of Nadia Boulanger and Princesse de Polignac. Maître Français asked me afterwards, was my spontaneity studied? Spontaneity comes from incessant study. I know in my head what I want the music to sound like, and at the moment of playing, it should emerge replete with my feeling and passion. Every time I play the Chopin waltz, it sounds different, according to how I feel at the time. More than anything, I must have flowers, always, always, said Claude Monet. Gardening has been one of my great passions. As I have said, I gardened at my house in Surrey during the war, and at Long Island. I made a lovely roof garden at Bruton Place, and created another garden at La Bergerie. I have a terrace now in my flat at Chateau Perigord, but at Impasse Rue de la Place, only a few pots outside the front door. When I have needed to, I could go up to the Apricots, a small area beside the road that came with the Andres house. There were two apricot trees and a fig tree, and just room to swing my hammock. Martin and I planted over fifty roses round the patch. It was fun, unkempt, wild and convenient, but it was not enough. From the first moment I set foot in Raziger, I had been fascinated by the awe-inspiring valley of Tremoin, abandoned some years earlier by the miners, whose livelihood stemmed from digging up the red iron ore in the soil which, as I said, gives the region its name. Dwellings and workshops had been built there. Along the river bed, now dry, there are at least three grottoes, natural underground passages explored and mapped by local paleontologists wearing hard hats with a gas lamp on the front. More recent owners had been a Catalan market gardener and his family who had built a greenhouse and installed electricity and water, but had found it not viable as a commercial proposition. The valley was beautiful, ringed with mountains, and I felt it could be cultivated and made productive again, so when the opportunity arose to buy the land, I could not resist it. I did not quibble or haggle, but paid the asking price. My vision was largely unplanned. I just thought of making a garden, and wondered if perhaps in time the stone houses could be restored. It was an absurd, huge, chaotic project, but help has come from others who share my enthusiasm. Once I had made the pilgrimage to Giverny, the garden Monet created in Normandy, round his rose, pink, and green shuttered farmhouse. I love his paintings, and especially the works which he painted in his garden, created by him especially for that purpose. Of course I had not his family, who helped him, or the six gardeners who ultimately gardened for him, or his genius as an artist, but I was inspired by Monet to create my own version of his visionary garden in Roussillon. The chief feature at Giverny is La Grande Allée, an avenue of wide, low arches over which climb varieties of old roses, the ground below carpeted with nasturtiums. Then, because I love exotic plants, and as I already had a temperature-controlled plant nursery, I established hibiscus, Gloriosa Superba, Strelitzia 
bananas, and other tropical plants. Round and about I planted my favorite Lagastremia, tree hibiscus, carnations, Budlea, fig trees, and fuchsias, mimosa and cherry, zinnias, dahlias, petunias, heartsies, pansies, and black-eyed susans. A multitude of seeds I scattered everywhere. The Mediterranean temperatures dictate what will and what will not survive in the ground. It is a twenty-five-minute winding walk from the village, with bends that take nerves to drive round. Some of my friends cannot face the terrifying drive on the unmade uproad. Jean-Marie, the potter, who with his wife established a pottery in the village, was tremendously interested in what I was doing at Tremois, the garden and the hothouse. The house had to be temperature and humidity controlled, and the surrounding plants had to be watered regularly. Jean-Marie organized the whole thing and installed machinery, pumps, automatic spraying. You're my manager, I told him. In 1989, I spent the hottest month of the year, August, working every day, all day at my valley, and I found on my return to Monte Carlo that my fingers had seized up and I could not play the piano at all. It took me three weeks to play again. I love it here in Monte Carlo, where the sun shines most of the time and I have beautiful views from all my windows. I am making my terrace into a bower with bougainvillea, clematis, roses, jasmine, passion flowers, geraniums, and hibiscus. The country itself is smaller than Central Park in New York, and safer, for it has more policemen per person than anywhere else in the world. Uniformed in black and navy blue, with white hats and gloves, they are everywhere. Provided foreign residents can maintain their financial independence, they are made welcome and are free of taxes. My wonderful Italian housekeeper is a fabulous cook whose late husband was chef at the Hotel de Paris. No matter what she cooks, it tastes better from her hands than anyone else's. She cossets me, tells me to go to bed, and will then bring me a tray. She is a worker, just like I am at the piano. When Rostropovich came to play in Monte Carlo, he told me an anecdote that took me back fifty years to the time when I was twenty-one and competed in the Isai competition in Brussels. Rostro had been playing in Russia and had met Jakob Flier, who, suffering an injury to one of his hands, had made a career as a teacher. He spoke to Rostro about me. "'You know that little English girl?' he said. "'She beat me.' and he confessed he had fallen a little bit in love with me. I was very touched by this story. "'Do you know, Rostro?' I said, amazed. "'I was a little bit in love with him.' So I looked to the future of more concerts, directing and developing the two festivals at Raziger and Guidel, and always in the back of my mind is the growing garden at Tremois. I am away for much of the year, and so when at last I reach Razaguer, it is always a great surprise to see how it has changed and matured. I have apricot trees there, and figs, and I am always sad when I have to leave before the fruit is ripe, and I am unable to make the jams I love to make. 
My friends say that I could earn my living making apricot and fig jam, because they are so good. And no wonder, since I pick the fruit in the morning and make the jam in the afternoon. Every time I revisit my valley at Tremois, I discover something new. These seeds have sprouted and leapt into fervent life. Others have dried up and rotted beneath the ground. It is a never-ending joy to me to spend a day or take a picnic supper to Tremois and, after gardening with my friends, to eat and drink, talk and laugh till night falls and we can breathe in the scented air, gaze at the stars in the sky and listen to the nightingales. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson. Thanks for your support.